seated. We can turn with your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Lord willing, we'll start the, the minor prophets again. Uh, in a couple weeks' time, we'll start the prophet Joel. Uh, but tonight, just as a one-off, we're going to look at Mark 6, verses 45 through 52, uh, continuing some of the themes we've seen over the past couple weeks that come from Exodus 34, namely as the Lord passes by and reveals himself to Moses. Certainly we see uh, that Jesus Christ is Yahweh who reveals himself to his people. So uh, we'll look at verses 45 through 52, and I'll begin reading at verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. When he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. When they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. Amen. Let us pray. Our God, we are thankful for the mystery of Christ, and we are thankful again for that mystery that he is God, and we're thankful that he is the God that we need. We're thankful that he is the mediator that we need, the one mediator between God and man. And we're thankful that when we are straining, we are thankful that when we are in distress and fearful, we have such a God that we can lean upon, we can call upon you, we can ask, and you do provide for your people. So help us to be reminded of that this night. Help us to be encouraged. Help us to be uh, not forgetful of the things that your word says concerning who you are. But once again, we confess so often we can forget uh, your promises. We can forget your attributes. We can forget who you are. And so we are thankful that you remind us and you remind us in your word and you remind us on the Lord's day. And we ask and pray that you remind us this night. Be pleased to strengthen your saints, encourage your saints, be pleased to save sinners. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, often we can be forgetful of the things of God. And perhaps if we become familiar with something, we become even more forgetful about the significance of such stories. And perhaps you know the story of Jesus walking on water. You've heard it quite often. But perhaps we can be forgetful and we perhaps don't see the main significance and the point Uh, of this miracle of what Jesus does when he walks on the water. The Bible is not about us. The Bible is about our Lord and Savior. The Bible is about God. And that is exactly what Mark wants us to see when he records for us this specific miracle. Remember, if you remember when we went through the Gospel of Mark, the main question in the Gospel of Mark is the question, who is Jesus? Driving to the point where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then we see Christ himself bearing witness in Mark 14. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father with power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Who is Jesus. Well, Mark is teaching us further who is Jesus as he records the one who walks upon the waves. 
as far as the section, if you remember, Mark's gospel was about location, and we're still during his ministry in Galilee. But within that ministry in Galilee, we see the expansion with the disciples. We see in chapter 7 that he calls the 12 to himself, that he has set them apart. He sends them out two by two to engage in ministry. His power expands through these ambassadors. But these disciples still have a lot to learn. These disciples have unrealistic expectations about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is teaching them, and even as Mark records John the Baptist beheading right after he sends out the, he records the sending out of the 12, he does so to remind us and remind the disciples of the unfairness in life. Things are not always as they seem. And the disciples had a view of the kingdom of heaven that needed to be driven out of their minds so that they might understand what the kingdom of heaven is really about. And as Christ teaches them, as Christ guides them, even with this miracle, he's providing hope and encouragement. Christ provides for his people in the midst of unfairness and desolation. He provides for his people when they are in need because he is merciful and gracious, because he is Yahweh, because he is God. Now, the problem that I think we can see in these verses is the problem when things are not fair, we can be forgetful disciples. We can be forgetful of the promises of God. We can be forgetful of who God is. We can be forgetful of the gospel of free and sovereign grace. And we need to be reminded that Jesus is God. It's so vital for Christianity. It's so important that perhaps sometimes because it's so familiar and so important that we forget the significance of the fact that Jesus is God. And so in Mark 6, verses 45 through 52, Jesus shows his hardened disciples that he is I am. He shows his hardened disciples that he is Yahweh, the ruler of creation and the redeemer of his people. He wants to teach his disciples something by appearing to them in what we call a theophany. This God appearing in a sensible way. And this is exactly what the walking on water is. It is Jesus showing them that he is Yahweh. And so we'll look at this under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see Yahweh passes by in verses 45 through 50a. Then secondly, we'll see Yahweh over the water in verses 50b through 52. So Yahweh passes by and Yahweh over the water. Let's first look at Yahweh passes by in verses 45 through 50a. And so in verses 45 through 57, we see lessons for his disciples as we look at the setting and as we look at the situation. And so we see in verse 45, this comes after the feeding of the 5,000. We see that Jesus sends his disciples away. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. Jesus removes the crowd, and we see the purpose for this in John's gospel. In John chapter 6, John says the reason that Jesus sent them away is because after he fed them, they want to come and make him king right away. Remember the Jews were looking for a political king. They were looking for one who would march upon Rome and free them from their oppression. Jesus frees people from oppression, but it's not from the oppression of Rome. He frees them from their bondage. He frees them from their sins, but he's not going to be the Messiah that they thought. He's going to be the Messiah that they ought to need, the Messiah that they ought to look to. But they have this misconception about who Jesus is. 
and he doesn't want the disciples to get hyped up with everything that's going on. So he sends the crowd away. He sends his disciples away. He sends them across the Sea of Galilee to the other side to Bethsaida. He compels them to go because right now he's still teaching them about who he is. Remember, they are going to be his witnesses. He doesn't just want anybody to be his witnesses. He wants those who know him well to be his witnesses. So he doesn't want the crowds to be his witnesses. He wants these disciples. And so he is still concealing. He's still keeping it under wraps, but he is teaching his disciples that they then might be the ones who are the witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he sends them away. He sends the multitude away. And after he sent them away, verse 46 He departs to the mountain to pray. There in the middle of the sea, he goes on the mountain to pray. Now, the purpose is probably to highlight the fact that he is the suffering servant for his people. He's not the leader that they want, and he has a specific purpose and task that the people need and must engage in. We see something similar in Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, after Jesus uh, casts out the unclean spirit from the synagogue, After he heals Peter's mother-in-law, after he does many other healings for the people, they want to come and take him. Everyone's searching for him, but he goes away because there's a misunderstanding about the kingdom. And he says in verse 38 of chapter 1, Let us go into the next towns, that I might preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. Now he came to die upon that cross, but he came also to preach who he is to preach and testify that he truly is the son of man and that he truly is the son of God. And so he goes to the mountain. He goes to a place of solitude. He goes to commune with the father. And another thing it's going to highlight is how quickly Jesus is going to get across that water as he descends down the mountain. But he goes to pray. He's not with his disciples according to his human nature. He is on the mountain and they are in the sea. But then there is this uh, uh, storm that arises, verse 47. Now, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. So contrasting to where he is and to where his disciples are. And then we see them straining, verse 48. Then he saw them straining at rowing. There is this problem that arises. There is this tempest that has occurred. And we see, for the wind was against them. So they're striving, they're rowing. Remember, these are seasoned fishermen. These are men who've been on this water many times. Now, it probably highlights the fact that the storm is not as severe as Mark chapter 4. They thought they were going to die. I mean, they've seen it all. They've been on the water many times. But Mark chapter 4, that storm was so severe that they thought they were going to die. This storm has some problems. This storm is causing some issues. There is a great wind. uh, But at this point... It's not so much that they're going to die. They're striving, they're rowing, they're trying to get across for the wind was against them. The disciples are going to learn a lesson they should have learned in Mark chapter 4. God is going to remind them of the lesson that they should have learned in Mark chapter 4. And so Jesus then descends from that mountain. We see he really is the one who is the wave walker. And so we see in verse 48, when he saw them straining at rowing. Notice they don't see Jesus. They don't know that he sees them. 
but he does see them. He knows what they're going through. He knows their strife. He knows their striving. He knows their rowing. He knows what's going on. Gil says either with his eyes or as the one who is the omniscient God. He sees all things. And so he sees their plight. He sees their problems, even if they don't know that he sees them. And so he sees them striving around that, uh, uh, um, for the wind was against them. The wind was uh, against the disciples as they're rowing. And then he descends to them. He appears to them. And it's, we show and see who he is. And so we see in verse 48, now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. He sees their problem, and then he comes to them. Now, the fourth watch probably is sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. It normally takes about six to eight hours to cross the sea in normal conditions. So these men would have been very, very tired. They're still in the middle of the sea. They're still striving. It's been a long night. They're not getting any sleep. They're trying to get across. They're in the abyss. They're in the sea. It is dark. And then here's this one who comes and walks on the water. And it's repeated for us because Mark wants us to see this miracle. He really does walk upon the water. This cannot be explained away like some post-enlightenment rationalistic thinkers. And they like to do, Jesus really does walk upon the water to demonstrate and show who he is. Job 9.8 speaks about God. As Job is speaking about who God is, he uses this language of the one who walks upon the waves. As he's talking about God and who he is, he says in Job 9.8, he says, he alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Now again, for the Old Testament, for the New Testament, the idea of the waters, the sea, the chaos was something that would have been difficult to subdue. Only God can do such a thing. You and I cannot subdue the wind and the waves. Only God can do such a thing. And here is the one who treads upon the waves. Here's the one who is God, and it is Jesus Christ who is walking upon the waves. Edward says, God can do what humanity cannot do and can never conceive of doing. His wisdom is beyond compare. He moves mountains, shakes the earth, obscures the suns, arrays the heavens in splendor, and treads on the waves of the sea. This God cannot be conceived of in human categories, and any natural explanation of his acts is foolish and pointless. The God described by Job is holy God, holy other, and can never be confused with human beings. He is God, and yet there is the mystery that the eternal son took on a human nature who is like us in every way, yet without sin, but he doesn't cease to be God. And so what we're seeing here is this revelation that Jesus is God, this theophany that Jesus is God. So he's walking on the sea. He's coming to them. He's going to help them. He sees their plight. He sees their need. He comes to them and he does so by way of walking. But one thing that's very interesting, and only Mark includes this, and I alluded to this last time, we see in verse 48 at the end there, and would have passed them by. Perhaps it could signify speed and distance, would have passed them by, he is going so quickly. But perhaps there is an Old Testament allusion involved here. 
Again, only Mark has this language. And it's, we don't look so much at the, how the Gospels align, although that's important, but we want to see where they differ because each author is probably highlighting something in that difference. And so what Mark wants us to see by way of illusion, that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the one who appears to his people. And this language of passing by is actually a pretty rare word, although it is used in Exodus 33, 19, and it's used in Exodus 34, 6. And remember, we can turn back to Exodus 34, and then we'll consider Exodus 33 as well. But as you're turning to Exodus 34, remember Exodus 33, we see Moses intercedes for the people after they've danced around that golden calf, after they sinned against God and engaged in adultery on their wedding night and engaged in wickedness, we see how is it that the presence of God is going to be restored to the people? Well, the only way is if God is gracious. The only way is if God is good. And certainly we see he will be gracious to whom he will be gracious and be merciful to whom he will be merciful too. But we see in verse 19, Moses asked to see God's glory. He wants to see and press in to his presence, but man cannot see God's, sorry, see his essence, but man cannot see God's essence and live. We need him to reveal himself to us in a way in which we do not die. And so we see verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Same language. And then we see that fulfilled in Exodus 34, 6. As the Lord descends in the cloud, a sign of his presence and goodness stood with him there, proclaimed the name of the Lord. And verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Mark wants us to see by way of illusion that Jesus is Yahweh that Jesus is good, that we see in all him all the fullness of the revelation of who God is in this one who took on a human nature. And so we see God appearing in Exodus 34 to a people who are sinful and in need. But what else is interesting, and on the same mountain later on in 1 Kings 19, you can turn there, 1 Kings 19, same mountain, Different situation. I guess it's not altogether that different. Later on in Israel's history, as there's the divided kingdom, we know that Judah in the south, there are some good kings, but Israel in the north, they're all wicked kings. And this is during the time of Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah. And so it's a bad time in Israel. And so Elijah just defeats the prophets of Baal. He destroys them. And then that wicked witch Jezebel, what does she say? She says, let the gods do to me and more. Also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of those prophets tomorrow about this time. She's going to kill Elijah. That is her plan and that is her purpose. So Elijah flees. He thinks he's by himself. He is in despair. And what does God do? God appears to him. God reveals himself to him. So in times of despair and in times of uh, when we sin, there is a God who is merciful and gracious. But we see in verse 11 of 1 Kings 19, then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. This is Sinai again. And behold, the Lord passed by. Same language. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. 
but the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, Where, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah explains his concern. I've been zealous. I killed them. I am alone left. Please take my life. He's not a disembodied spirit, is he? And he goes, God appears to him in this still small voice. But God then reminds him about what's going to happen. God encourages him with what's about to happen. He's going to bring an end to the Omri dynasty. He's going to bring an end to Ahab's wickedness. But he does say in verse 18, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, the northern kingdom. Elijah thinks he's alone. I 7,000, all those whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You see, Elijah was in great despair, so much so that he wished to take his life. But what does God do? He passes by. God appears to him. God encourages him. God uplifts him. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for his disciples. He is the Lord God who is gracious and good, sees his disciples in need. He is forgiving, he is kind, and he sees his people. Just with that word, would have passed them by, because only Mark includes it, and it is a rare word. So we see God's goodness. He appears to them. And then verse 49, we see their fear because they have no idea what's going on. I mean, they're rowing. I mean, they're tired. Verse 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost. They supposed it was an apparition and cried out for they all saw him and were troubled. They observed. They see this one walking on water. They've never seen anybody walk on water before. And if you were the disciples... And remember, the disciples are a mirror to us. We would have freaked out as well. Here's this guy just strolling on top of the waves. We'd have lost our minds too. Because here is this, because people typically do not walk on water. They sink into the water. And it could have been the case, it's not uncommon for that time in the Greco-Roman world for people in general to be afraid of what would be called a water demon. But these seasoned fishermen have not seen this before. They have not seen what's going on. They say, ah, it is a ghost because it, it is so miraculous. And what it shows, though, in many ways is how forgetful the disciples are. And we're going to start with that application. And hopefully I'm a little bit encouraging as we talk about the forgetfulness of God's people. I'll end with some encouraging reminders of God's goodness and forbearance. But we need to be reminded of how forgetful God's people can be. Again, that's kind of the overarching problem throughout this section in Mark's gospel, throughout the last few sections. They kind of say things before they think. Let's be honest, we all sometimes say things before we think. Sometimes we can be a ready, fire, aim kind of person rather than thinking about where we're aiming it. And the disciples, many times when they speak, that is the case, isn't it? Many times when they open their mouth, I mean, just with the feeding of the 5,000, oh, how are we going to feed everybody? Where shall we go and buy how much stuff? And I mean, they've been forgetful. I mean, they were with Jesus when he healed, when he you know, calmed the wind and the waves. They were with Jesus when he healed the demon-possessed man and restored the girl to life. They were with him. They should know that he is Yahweh who provides for his people. He is the bread of life 
for his people. And let's be honest, if we are like the disciples, we can read something, be reminded of the goodness of God, but throughout the week we forget it, don't we? We forget God's goodness, we forget the gospel, but thankfully even when we are forgetful, God is pleased to remind us of his promises. There are situations that we should have grown from, right? We like to grow from the situations if we don't respond in a proper way, but then that situation arises again and we respond in the exact same way. We can be forgetful of the things that happen and especially the promises of God. And that's why we must never take our eyes off of Christ. Mark doesn't have the Peter situation with respect to this narrative, with respect to what goes on here. But remember, Peter took his eyes off of Christ and he began to sink. We always have to keep our eyes upon Christ. I mean, that is the Christian life. Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. That is what we must do. You struggle with sins, look to Christ. You struggle with issues, look to Christ. You struggle and have despair or distress, look to Christ. That is what we must do. And we need to be reminded of who he is. He is Yahweh. He is God and he sees his people. He passes by, he reveals and he reveals himself here to his disciples. We have his revelation to us in the word of God that he is Yahweh. Now this revelation about him being Yahweh continues. So we see how he passes by. He is like the one, he is like God, Yahweh, who appears to Moses uh, at Sinai, who appears to Elijah at Horeb, same place, uh, in various times in Israel's history that we looked at. But we also see that he is the one over the water. So he passes by, but he's also the one over the water. And so what we see in verse 50b to 52. So passes by now to our second point, Yahweh over the water. And notice the words of comfort that he gives. They respond with fear, and he gives words of comfort. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer. I think a better translation is, Be courageous. Be courageous. Be firm or resolute in the face of danger or adverse circumstances. And let's be honest, it was an adverse circumstance and there was much danger. That is where courage must be exercised. When there's a good that we desire, a good that we perceive, and there's an obstacle in that way, we have to have the courage to push through that obstacle to get the thing that which is good. And thankfully, we do not do it alone. Notice what he says. Be of good cheer or be courageous. Do not be afraid. And what does he say? It is I. Or perhaps better, I am. Ego, a me. And as we think of Exodus chapter 3, and Exodus chapter 3 is in view, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush and he says, I am who I am, if you look at the Greek translation of Exodus 3, it's ego, I, me. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is ego, I, me, that Jesus is I am. John does this a lot with all the I am statements. Before Abraham was, I am. When Jesus is arrested and they say, we're looking for Jesus, and he says, 
it is I, he actually is I am. And they all then do what? They all step back and bow down before him because he is the I am. And remember when God appears to Moses, he wants to show Moses that he is the God who has life in himself. He is the God who is self-existent. He is I am and he does not change. He is the covenant Lord. When we read in the scriptures, as Pastor Maldor pointed out this morning, capital L-O-R-D, that has Yahweh in the background. And so we see here, Jesus is saying, be courageous. Why do we not need to be afraid? He says, I am. We ought to fear our God. We ought to recognize that he is God and we are man, but we ought not to be so afraid of him that we do not go to him. We ought not to be so afraid of him that we don't see that he is the God who is merciful and gracious. And if you ask, if you seek, if you believe upon him, if you look to him, if you are one of his children and you call upon his name, he will be merciful and gracious. Notice who God is, is applicable to the people of God, isn't it? How applicable it is in a life of distress or moments of distress. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Be courageous. Why? I am. If you're going through it in life, if you're going through distress, do not be afraid for he is I am. Our God is the God who does not change and he is the God who sees us in our struggles. He sees us in our distress and he is the God who will help us. He comes to them to help them. He shows that he is the I am. That's why the disciples do not need to be afraid. That's why you and I do not need to be afraid. He is I am. And Mark doesn't have ego I me a whole lot uh, in his gospel. It's used in Mark 13 with respect to the deceivers, how we know it's not the end. How do we know that Christ has not come back yet when there are wars and rumors of wars? We know it's not the end. How do we know that Christ has not come back yet? Because there are those who are going to come and say, I am. They're going to pretend to be God, but in reality, they are not God. So it is used there with respect to deceivers. But then we see Christ's Christological, or I guess Mark's Christological climax of the entire book in Mark 14.62. You can turn to Mark 14.62. Throughout the ministry, again, Jesus is trying to keep it under wraps. He wants those who will be his witnesses to be the main ones who testify to who he is. But Jesus finally, on trial, testifies to the Pharisees, this open witness about who he is. And he says, verse 62, I am. Ego, I me. He is this human charge against him as being blasphemous because he says, I am. He is saying he is God. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What that refers to is Christ's ascension coming with the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7 is in the background as the one who is the son of man comes to the ancient of days. And then we see his session the one seated at the right hand of the power. And right now, he is seated at the right hand of the power. And so, brethren, do not be afraid. He is, and he is seated at the right hand of God Almighty. He is seated at the right hand of the power. He has come with the clouds of heaven to vindicate 
and show that he truly is God. Remember, he's on trial here. It's a show trial. It's a false trial. It is trying to get Jesus uh, to say something that would make the Pharisees want to kill him. And he says the truth, I am. And so what do they do? They kill him. But his ascension and session testify and vindicate that he truly is the one whom he said he was. And we need to be reminded of that. The disciples needed to be reminded of that all the way back in chapter 6. He really is God. It is I, do not be afraid. He is the one who is ruler over creation. He is the one who is over the waters and that chaos that requires subduing. Genesis 1-2, the spirit hovers over the face of the deep. He is the one who brings redemption for Israel. We see how God subdues the waters in Exodus 14. The Exodus motif comes out again here in Mark's gospel with him walking upon the water. Jesus really is Yahweh, the one who rules creation and the one who saves his people from their sins. He really is the God that we need, the one who walks on water, the one who reveals himself to his people, and the one who is the I am. And then we see his disciples' response in verses 51 and 52. I just, we should just stopped at 50. I should just stop there, but it's okay. We'll do 51 and 52 as well. Notice their amazement. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. Now again, did they forget Mark 4 when they were about to die and he told the wind and the waves to shut it and they do exactly that. They shut it. That's actually the word. I'm not trying to be crap. That's exactly what it says. Shut it. They need to be quiet. He is the one who rules over them. And this language of verse 51 is the same language of Mark chapter 4 uh, to draw us in. Are we as amazed or have we forgotten that Jesus is the one who has not only walked on water, but he is the one who has control over the water simply by speaking to it? One of the things about Mark's gospel is he tries to draw us in. He doesn't always give us everything. I'm a meat and potatoes kind of guy. I need to be told exactly what it is. Matthew does that. Matthew tells us exactly what's going on. Mark's trying to draw us in. Mark wants us to be attentive, to see what's going on. He might not answer everything, but he does so by way of implication. And so he is drawing us in with that same language. Are we as amazed of our Christ as we were in Mark chapter 4? They were greatly amazed, he continues, in themselves beyond measure, and they marveled. This is not something that they ordinarily encounter. He's trying to awaken them from their dullness. Sometimes we can be dull and we need to be awakened from our dullness. They marveled, they marveled beyond measure at this one who walks upon the waves. But then Mark does something that, again, none of the other gospels do. And he concludes with this explanation in verse 52. For they had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. We see in chapter 5 or 6, verses 30, through 44, the section that immediately precedes this. We see Jesus shows that he is the one who provides for his people, that he, just like Yahweh, provided bread in the wilderness, provided manna, and Mark or John explains, as Jesus explains 
to the multitude the next day uh, based upon what happens with the feeding of the 5,000 and after Jesus walking on the water in John's gospel that he is what? He is the bread of life. And he is the one who can be trusted. He is the one, if you look to him by faith, you shall always be satisfied. He really is God. That's what they should have paid attention to with verses 30 through 44. If he fed the 5,000, if he provided for them, would he not provide for his disciples here in this situation as they're rowing across the, uh, the water with the wind and the waves? God really can be trusted. We ought to remember that. But thankfully, sometimes we're so forgetful that God is so kind to remind us again. And right here, he is doing it again. He's reminding his disciples of who he is. For they did not understand. They did not grasp what was going on. They did not see what was happening in this moment. They would understand later, but at this point, they're struggling. What is going on? What is happening? They did not understand about the loaves. And the reason was their heart was hardened. It doesn't mean they weren't saved, although it is used in that way in other passages. But the point here is to highlight that the disciples were just very thick, and they repeatedly forgot the goodness of God with their dumb questions. Later on, the loaves are going to come up again in chapter 8, verse 17. They reasoned among themselves when Jesus is talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. The disciples say it is because we have no bread. <laughs> and Jesus says, why do you reason? Because you have no bread. Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Are you still this thick? Do you still not understand? Sometimes it just takes us a long time to understand things, right? We have to read it over and over. And remember, we're the disciples in all of this, right? We're the disciples who sometimes fail to see and take a long time to understand the promises of God. And again, God is still very good to us. But Jesus says, having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it that you do not understand? And then we see Mark is the only one who includes in verses 22 through 26, this blind man who was healed at Bethsaida, Remember, the disciples were going to Bethsaida in Mark chapter 6. But Mark is the only one who includes this healing situation to highlight that the way in which we see is supernatural. The only way that we can see who Jesus is, the only way that we can see who God is and to be reminded of his promises is if God enlightens our eyes. If God gives us a new heart, if God gives us eyes to see and ears to hear, that truly is the only way. We need God to open our eyes. We see God and the condescension of the Son taking on a human nature, but to see him as God, it requires God to give us new life, to regenerate our hearts, to be able to see who this Jesus is. Gill says, blinded, not by sin or against Christ, much less in a judicial way 
but there was a great deal of dullness and stupidity and want of attention in them. The glory of Christ, which he manifested and showed forth in his miracles, was not so clearly and fully discerned, attended to, and acknowledged by them, as it might reasonably be thought it would. For notwithstanding these miracles, which they daily saw, they stood in need of divine illuminations, that the darkness of their minds being removed, they might behold the glory of Christ as the glory of the only begotten of the Father." Even for Christians, sometimes it takes us a long time to understand something. There are those scenarios that you hear of men who've heard the same sermon, the same preaching, but they go and visit another church, and for some reason, it was that day where it somehow all made sense. That's why it's good to be under the preaching, under the Word of God, because even perhaps when you read your Bibles, you ever notice as you go through it over the year and each year after year, some things different just stand out. You see, God is pleased to help us. We still have much to grow, still have much to learn in, still have much to remember. And let's be honest, we always need to be reminded of the promises of God in Christ. And thankfully, the encouraging and comforting application that I think we can draw uh, from these verses is that we have a forbearing God, forbearing God for a fearful and forgetful people. He is patient, he is long-suffering, he is good, he sees them, he comes to them, and he assures them, do not be afraid. The Lord of creation cares for his forgetful people. Even if we don't always see God, and remember we cannot see God in his essence, but we don't always see and cannot see the Son in his human nature until he comes again, Yet nonetheless, we know that he sees us. He loves us. He cares for us. The I am is with his people. J.C. Ryle says, There are thoughts of comfort here for all true believers. Wherever they may be or whatever their circumstances, the Lord Jesus sees them, alone or in company, in sickness or in health, by sea or by land, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, the same eye which saw the disciples tossed on the lake is ever looking at us. We are never beyond the reach of his care. Our way is never hidden from him. He knows the path that we take and is still able to help. He may not come to our aid at the time we like best, but he will never allow us utterly to fail. He who walked upon the water never changes. He will always come at the right time to uphold his people. Though he tarry, let us wait patiently. Jesus sees us and will not forsake us. That is the comfort we need to take away. Even when we don't see Yahweh, Yahweh sees us. And there is that comfort and encouragement. Be of good cheer. Be courageous. Do not be afraid. Why? Because Jesus is Yahweh. Well, let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your goodness towards us and your kindness to care for us. We are thankful for who you are, that you are Yahweh, that Jesus is Yahweh, that the Spirit is Yahweh. And we are thankful that you are so kind to us to reveal yourself to us, to care for us, to love us, and to demonstrate your love for us uh, in the fact that it was the eternal Son who took on a human nature to die on Calvary's tree in the stead of undeserving people. We're thankful that Christ is the bread of life 
and in him we are always satisfied, in him we are always full, and help us to be reminded of that, that we've fed upon him by faith, and we're thankful that he truly is the great I am. Help us to see the significance of him walking on the water, that he is the I am. Help us to see the significance of the loaves, the 5,000 and the 4,000, that you are the good shepherd who nourishes your people, who provides for them, who provides uh, for all your people, whether Jew or Gentile. And we're thankful for your love and for your care for us. And so we ask and pray uh, for all of your people, that we would know your nearness, that we would know your comfort, that we would know that you see us and that you love us. We pray for any here today who do not know you. Please save them. Please show them their sin, and may they look to Christ by faith. We know that you're the one who enlightens eyes. We know that you're the one who gives new hearts. We know that you're the one who gives the gift of faith, and we pray that you would do so, uh, that you would call forth your lost sheep, that we might see that they are saved sheep, and we're thankful that you are pleased to do so according to your timing. But we're thankful for the comfort that you have provided Thank you for who our Savior is. Thank you for the gospel promises that we see in the scriptures and the new covenant promises that we have in Christ Jesus. And we ask and pray that we would cling to that. Help us to look to Christ. Help us to cling to him. Help us to trust your promises. Help us not to forget who you are and what you've done. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ.